Hello and welcome to Social X, the monthly podcast from Humentum. My name's George Miller, and I'm delighted to have as our guest today Nancy Murphy, who is founder and president of CSR Communications. Nancy has a wealth of experience working with associations, foundations, non-profit organizations, government agencies, and companies. And in the past dozen years, her particular focus has been change, conceptualizing it, articulating it, realizing it, and unsticking it when it gets stuck. The CSR Communications website says, we serve teams and organizations with a social purpose. And the change leaders inside those established organizations, aka entrepreneurs, who strive to make them more innovative, equitable, effective and efficient. Nancy, thank you so much for being with us today and welcome to SocialX. Thanks, George. I'm glad to be here. Now, I know you do regular little two-minute tip videos. I just wanted to start with a little um, question about those because you put those out regularly and you're offering little nuggets of wisdom, I suppose, or little um, tips and insights for, for people who follow you in social media. And I wondered, where do you look for the inspiration for those little two-minute videos? Well, generally, I find the inspiration for those videos from kind of a combination of the things I teach on a regular basis through the programs and my work with clients, as well as the questions or the challenges that people are bringing to me in those settings. And so I try to find something that someone recently has said I'm really struggling with this or um, a a challenge they've brought to me and then offer a a quick tip that might help someone else who's in a similar situation. And I know that you're a keen runner. Is when you're running, is that a time when ideas come to you? Is that sort of fertile (laughs) time or is that a switching off sort of time? That uh, it can be both. I tend to run with other people. So sometimes I will process a little bit with them or test things out with them. I often get ideas uh, during my morning routine, which includes some meditation and reflection time or in the shower. I think that's where we all get great ideas, right? Yes. Yeah. Sometimes on my bicycle, if I, that's some, one of my most productive places when I'm cycling. So I wanted to take you all the way back to um, your time at Catholic school, because in your in your biography online, you mention that as the first instance when you challenged stereotypes. And that's clearly something that's that's remained a constant in your career. So can you take us back to, to Catholic school and, and tell me a little bit about what you were doing? What, what was the stereotype you were, you were challenging and why? Well, if I have to go back to Catholic school, I suppose... <laughs> We'll go there. <laughs> We're so, going to yes. force you just just for just for a minute. <laughs> yes, I spent sixteen years of my life in Catholic school, and you know, at first, it was a comforting, wonderful environment. All the kids in my neighborhood went to that school. We went to the church every weekend. I was pretty bought in, but then as I got older. I started sensing some incongruencies, some things that, you know, I I was being told in one aspect of my life about I could do anything I wanted, I could pursue any opportunity, and then some messages about the role of girls in particular and what we contributed to the world that were a little bit in conflict with that. And specifically, I remember it was about seventh grade where... 
One day, we all went out to recess at lunchtime, and there was what we came to call the giant wall of pylons across the middle of the playground. And the teachers told us that the girls had to stay on one side of the pylons during recess, and the boys had to stay on the other, because the girls were too much of a temptation for the boys at recess, so we just couldn't be around each other. And this was coupled with a lot of messages that we were getting around the boys choosing their high school because there was an all-boys Catholic school that had a very good reputation as a rigorous academic environment, and then the co-ed school, which was the girls' only choice. And, you know, the boys needing to choose the all-boys school, that was the better choice for the smart boys because there were fewer distractions in the classroom. So I remember feeling really upset that somehow girls were only distractions and temptations. We could not add anything academically to the classroom environment. And why wasn't it the boys' fault that they were tempted versus our fault and we had to be the ones sort of removed from the environment? So that was when I really first started challenging some of these status quo mindsets and some of these stereotypes and enlisting some allies like a Salesian brother who was younger, who was sort of assigned to be pals with the kids in the school and sort of help us navigate things and enlisting him to help me sort of understand why this was the language we were getting, why these were the messages we were hearing. And, you know, I wouldn't say I succeeded in breaking down the patriarchal system of the Catholic Church, but it was a good start. And did you realize back then that that you were maybe a little bit more willing to speak up and to to challenge the orthodoxy than than many of your peers? Was it sort of like a moment of illumination that, hey, this is something that I feel passionately about and and motivated to do something about? Well, I think for me, it was definitely one of those moments where I realized that I was pretty good at seeing the logic flaws sometimes in other people's thought processes or arguments that I could bring a different perspective or see things in a way that opened up some new ways of thinking that maybe others weren't seeing, and that there are certainly risks with challenging people's assumptions and challenging the status quo, but that I thought it was a worthwhile endeavor. Yeah. And I guess that's something we'll probably want to come back to, this mm. idea that there's a right time to do that and there's a right way to do it. And um, and that's really been uh, a lot of what you've been sort of facilitating in the, in the, in the last um well, more than 10 years of your career. But I, I'm going to keep in the past for just a little bit longer because I want to, we're going to come forward from Catholic school, but um, I'm always really interested in people's sort of view of the world at the moment when they, when, you know, when they complete their, their university studies, that sort of turning point of, you know, you've gone through education, you're contemplating the big wide world and you're thinking about, you know, where do I see myself? What kind of job, what kind of role, what can I, what can I do in the world? Can you cast yourself back to, to the age of you know your early your early twenties and tell me what what how the world looked to you and how your place in it looked at that point? Yeah, well, so I was just coming out of sixteen years of Catholic school because I did go to Catholic college as well, and I had a degree in American studies, so the quintessential liberal arts, highly impractical <laughs> degree. In a an economic downturn in 1990 here in the U.S. and um, 
So trying to get a job was probably not the easiest compared to some of my classmates who came out with these very practical engineering degrees and were turning down, you know, very lucrative offers left and right. And so I sort of found myself probably having one of those existential crises, you know, for the first time in my life, the obvious next step wasn't in place. It wasn't already mapped out for me. And so some people might see that as hugely exciting. You know, the whole world is before them. I saw it as pretty scary, frankly. And my motivations at the time were definitely to, you know, to save the world, right? That was, I was, I wanted to go into nonprofit work. I had lots of causes that were important to me. And I remember applying, you know, for some of these executive director of some local nonprofit. Oh, I was so unqualified for <laughs> for that. <laughs> Took but me a aspiring while to learn. and ambitious. I mean, not 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 willing to, um, you know, the same as a Catholic school experience. Not you know, not willing to accept the status quo and willing to, um, you know, to venture an opinion. Yeah. Well, you know, in the end, I I found an opportunity as the first youth volunteerism director for a local volunteer center in Columbus, Ohio. And, you know, what was exciting about that was I got to work with every nonprofit and a bunch of schools inside the county. So I got to help every cause that I was interested in. And so it turned out to be the perfect opportunity. And I was also in that role of challenging those mindsets and, assumptions around young people as volunteers, because at this time, the the sort of youth volunteerism movement was very nascent. Um, So that was a great first job for me. And I think, you know, my primary motivator coming out of college after, of course, wanting to do good in the world was to be independent. And so how could I, you know, put together enough of a part, you know, a part-time job and a full-time job. And, you know, where could I find the resources that would enable me to not have to move back home with my parents? So that was also an important driver. That's, that's often an important driver for, for many of us, I think it would be fair to say. Now, in the course of your career, since, since, since those beginnings, you've had a, as I said at the start, you've had a wealth of experience, um, not just with the non- non-profit sector, but also the commercial sector, government agencies, and I wondered if you sort of stand back and sort of assess that experience that you've had, do you think that ultimately all organisations have more in common than they have um, that separate them in terms of how they think, how they operate, how they change? Or do you think that, that it's more fruitful to sort of take a sector by sector approach to thinking about um, the kind of change agenda that you work on? So I would say certainly more the former, that there's more commonality across organizations, across sectors when it comes to the experience of change and how we lead change successfully than there are differences. And actually, I guess this is about five years ago now, I had spent uh, a lot of my early to mid part of career leading, building, facilitating cross-sector partnerships and... In doing so, I got really frustrated that there were so many assumptions that leaders from each sector organization would bring to the table about the others, right? So government agencies are bureaucratic, they're hard to work with. Nonprofits just, they suck up resources, they move too slow, 
you know, they're all about doing good. The corporations have a hidden agenda. They're just trying to sell us something. And I found that actually those things were less true in terms of how people approached partnerships than the mindsets and the culture of the organization. So I think that goes right to your question, which is we ended up doing some psychographic research and identifying four cross-sector partnership personas, if you will, that I think are a better predictor of how successful a partnership will be or the right kind of partnership to put together based on the persona, not the tax status of the organization. So I think that speaks to the change approach and the change style that's going to work best for each organization as well. And I think I've I've heard you refer elsewhere to the the sort of important role of translation. You know, different organizations mm. and different sectors speak different languages. And sometimes if you can if you can find the commonalities or if you can translate from one language to another, you do indeed find that there is more in common than than uh, that separates. Absolutely. Especially if folks are in that what I call the solution seeker category, right? If they're truly looking to bring all of the assets and strengths and talents to the table to work in collaboration to solve some pressing problem in the world, then I think, you know, those are the kind of folks I want to get at the table more often than not. And then it really is, there's even more common language there. There might be some slightly different terms that we need to make sure we're all on the same page with, but definitely more commonality than difference. Yeah. So tell me about your focus specifically on change and entrepreneurs who are the internal agents of change within organizations. Did you have a, was it a a sort of light bulb moment when you were running one day that that this was going to be the focus of of what you were going to do um, henceforth? Or did it sort of gradually dawn on you that 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 was a way to sort of crystallize all this experience and all the the things that you wanted to help um, affect? Yeah, you know, I sort of think about that as maybe like experiencing a sunrise where it just gets lighter and lighter gradually that you might not really notice until the sun breaks the horizon and like smacks you right in the face and you know you have to shield your eyes so I think it was a little bit of that like the spotlight was suddenly shown on the opportunity why it mattered to me and the fact that I was good at it But then upon reflection, I sort of noticed that it was more of the sort of gradual brightening, I suppose, over time, you know, that there were all these little pieces that in hindsight seemed to be building to that moment. But I think there was, you know, there was an aha moment when I was working in philanthropy at a time when there was so much attention being put on social entrepreneurs. And I think social entrepreneurship is great. And it definitely is needed. We need those sort of external disruptors. But I was getting frustrated with how much attention and celebration and resources we were, you know, as a as a field kind of throwing at those social entrepreneurs, when I knew the value of the large established organizations like many of Humentum's members represent that had the scale, the reach, the talent, the resources, the expertise. 
where those social entrepreneurs might have a great idea and maybe over time they scale, but at first their impact is super small and it really may never grow. But if we could get these larger organizations that already have presence in 42 countries around the world to be a little more innovative or more equitable or more environmentally sustainable or whatever the thing is that that we're trying to do to sort of break down the the systemic barriers to realizing the change we want, well, then we could have the positive change in the world much faster. So that to me was, you know, sort of sitting in these conferences and hearing the sort of over glorification that we sometimes do for the entrepreneurial spirit in this in the US anyway, and wanting to celebrate those people leading change inside these powerful large organizations who were oftentimes ignored, overlooked, not celebrated, and not given tons of resources and support to lead their change. Nancy, I just want to sort of hit pause on the notion of change for a minute and sort of interrogate it, because I think, you know, if you go into the business book section of a, of a bookstore or, or browse online, there can be a sort of assumption that change is intrinsically and always a good thing. Mm. And yet, if you then, you know, ask employees, people on the ground about their notions of change, they may come up with all sorts of different ideas. Like, you know, there may be an element of fear built into it, um, maybe an element of cynicism built into it, you know, because we can all think of examples where change is used, you know, as a euphemism by a management in a, in a company when they've, they've actually got an agenda that's about layoffs or or perhaps, you know, making unreasonable productivity demands. And I was thinking, you know, if you push it to the, its ultimate, um, the internal uh, slogan that uh, that Facebook came up with in its earlier years was move fast and break things. And that's, I guess that's a radical change manifesto. So you can see that perhaps change, or one can see that change is a, is a very broad terrain and it's understood and it's even sort of used by different people in, in different ways. So it's it's kind of understandable that there might be a barrier to change that change isn't isn't always an easy thing to to implement well absolutely and i don't think that change is in and of itself always good right so you gave some examples of change being a euphemism for things sometimes i will tell you i i see leaders who sort of get addicted to change in a way it's a little bit of that bright shiny object syndrome but it's almost like sometimes I will ask people what is it what difficult thing might you be avoiding by constantly pursuing change so sometimes the change becomes a distraction for something else that really needs attention that said um, I do encourage all of us to think about There are five psychological triggers I teach that make change hard for human beings. And so to the extent that all of us are human, (laughs) we're all going to find change difficult for different reasons in different moments. But I encourage all of us to really think about sometimes we might think of ourselves as extremely open to change (laughs) and like, I love change. I'm, I, you know, I want to, I always try to incentivize change or to drive change. And I think that might be true in some areas of one's life, but maybe not true in every area. So try to think about areas where perhaps you're resistant to change, because that helps us realize that 
when people give us pushback on an idea or on a change we're leading, it's not because they're sort of inherently necessarily um, so protective and preserving of the status quo or because they're just trying to be difficult. And that we might find ourselves in that situation in other areas of our life. And so it just sort of helps make the conversations more empathetic and more productive. Yeah. I remember at the beginning of my career working with someone who was very intelligent, very articulate, very committed to his job and, and to the company. But he said to me, I hate change, even change for the better. And I mm. <laughs> that's sort of that's a sort of radical, radical anti-change sort of sort of manifesto at, at one extreme. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you've sort of already alluded to this. You know, change for change's sake is not is not a is not a, a good agenda to pursue. So clearly, it's very important, and this must be a significant part of of your work with with clients in getting them to think really hard about what the vision is. You know, what the end state, the change um, they want to achieve, uh, will, will lead to. You know, working on the vision thing. Yeah, and I think that's a it's a really tricky balance to um to to have in terms of having a really clear vision for the destination, you know, where you want to end up and also not falling so in love with every detail of your plan that you don't leave room for evolution or co-creation with the folks who are impacted by the change. So one thing I spend a lot of time working with leaders on is getting super clear on the why. You know, can you put into place, can you create a one-minute speech that really gets to the principles underneath the reason for change right now and the reason for this change right now? And what's not negotiable in this. So for example, when I was board chair at PACT and we were working on a pretty significant governance transformation, there were certain things in that where, you know, this idea of thinking of the people who participate in our programs and receive our services as shareholders and being really clear about what we mean by that and what role that those shareholders should have in our governance. There were certain principles that were just non not negotiable. But then giving room in the how we get there for co-creation, for some pushback and resistance that might help illuminate blind spots that those of us who are more optimistic leaders might have, or who are less familiar with the conditions in certain countries or contexts or environments that might lead us to have the how be a little different than what maybe my initial idea was. And so how do we get super clear on the why and the principles, and then create space for some evolution and co-creation along the way. So having every little detail pinned down at the start is not necessary. And it may, from what you've said, it may even not be desirable because it allows no room for flexibility and for others to have input as as a project develops. Absolutely. And when we're talking about some of these large-scale organizations, and we're talking about you know, transformational change or really significant change, not necessarily the change of we're implementing a new software tool for time tracking, for example. I mean, not that that's not disruptive <laughs> because it often can be, 
But when we're talking about, you know, really significant change to how we meet our mission sometimes, well, that's the kind of change where for one leader to sit in a room by herself or himself and map out A to Z, uh, an exact detailed timeline and every facet and how it's going to play out across the organization, that's pretty impossible anyway. I wouldn't recommend it. (laughs) I mean, you you said earlier that nonprofits are not you know, it's not necessarily fruitful to think of them as a as a species apart. There are commonalities. Mm. Nonetheless, there are some there are some particularities about the the sector. And I wondered if you were to paint a very broad brush picture of the nonprofit sector's um, attitude to change, its experience of change. Are there things that you might you might highlight? Well. You know, I'm hesitant to sort of make a a super broad reaching statement about a sector that isn't of itself entirely diverse, (laughs) you know, when you think about the size of nonprofits and all of that. But if I think about international development and international NGOs, for example, for for a moment, you know, I would say some of the... um, maybe mistakes that I see more frequently or things that that might not always serve organizations well is that there's a lot of change management as an approach. There's a lot of this sort of process improvement. Let's have checklists and protocols and bringing a lot of the management science into change. And I think that we could do with a lot more leadership and understanding the human element that can't always be controlled and managed in the way we think that it sometimes can when we look at a, you know, a sort of standard logical timeline for change or phases of change, for example, or that sometimes we get, (laughs) we get so, we fall so in love with what it is we do and how we do it and the donors and partners we have that will tinker around the edges, but we're sometimes hesitant or afraid to bring a little bit of that Facebook attitude in and, you know, what can we break so that we can rebuild it in a way that is more more equitable or more powerful or more empowering or more innovative And we tend to be a little reactionary to maybe donors are asking us to do things differently. But we're not always great about sort of looking at our legacy approaches and going beyond tinkering around the edges. So, I mean, if you sort of boil what you've just said down to the bare bones, are you talking about the the competing challenges of systems versus culture? Is Mm. Is that what it sort of boils down to? That that's certainly definitely you know one way we could think about it absolutely, or I think it's also a little bit of the like sometimes we want to to make change predictable, controllable, logical, and it just inherently isn't. Not that there aren't ways we can't do it better and make it easier. I believe there are. And that's why I teach this. And at the same time, what I teach around that is is all about the human, the emotional, the unpredictable, and how do we prepare ourselves for that unpredictability, for that chaos, and some, and in some ways sort of step into it and see where the opportunities are versus assuming that we can make it a controllable, predictable thing. And then when it doesn't turn out that way, we get really frustrated and 
either, you know, sort of steamroll it through or get frustrated and back off. Right. Now, I mean, if we take a a sort of worked example, as it were, if if we think about maybe a mid-sized organisation that has identified um, a desire to do more to foster a diversity, equity and inclusion mm-hmm. agenda, mm-hmm. I mean, what kind of mindset do you think that organisation has to ensure it is in, in order to, you know, to take the first steps down that path and to to create, you know, all the way from the vision to the to the actualization of the of that um, agenda. Well, when it comes to almost any kind of change, but especially change that can be so supercharged emotionally and have lots of different meanings behind it, like a diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative. I always encourage organizations to get super clear right from the beginning, what does that mean to you in your organization? So first of all, when we're talking about diversity, what exactly does that mean for our organization? What's the getting again clear on that vision of the destination? So what do we want that to look like at the end? And then also being clear about I mean, one of the things I'm doing right now is an interesting um, series of executive interviews on this very topic with people leading change and who have led this kind of change to sort of bring their experience and expertise combined with my um, experience and expertise and influence, persuasion and organizational change and, and help organizations move beyond the proclamations and positions. So if some if some organization in the last year created their first ever chief diversity officer, that's great. What are all the little things, I call them artifacts, what are all the little things that get left behind that tell people what we really value around here, how things really get done around here, that show us what really matters. And oftentimes, that's where organizations, particularly on the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, fail to look around for all the things that might reinforce the opposite of what it is they're trying to achieve. So just sort of putting a position in place or making a commitment that's very public will not in and of itself achieve those results. We need to go on, you know, an archaeological dig or a scavenger hunt and find all those artifacts and then figure out which ones we can change and how do we lay down new artifacts that signal different things that matter, different things we value, that create processes and protocols and systems that are aligned with the change we're leading, not in conflict with it. They don't make it harder to do the things we want people to do. They make it easier to do the things we want people to do. Yeah. I mean, the the artifact metaphor is a really fascinating one, I think, because it's like a little bit of computer code, isn't it, That, that, that has been preserved from some previous iteration. It's not necessary. It may be, you know, completely undesirable. In some cases, it may, it may simply be an impediment to the, the, program running very smoothly I guess in some cases it may ultimately prove to be fatal to the program running smoothly and I I suppose then the key thing is to be able to uh, diagnose them to find them in the first place and then to work out which are the ones that really need to be addressed urgently and how they can be addressed. Absolutely and you know what I tell people all the time is because I'll get pushback you know well we can't 
we can't change that policy because it's imposed on us from the U.S. government, our largest donor, for example. Or, you know, the state regulators have told us we have to do X, Y, Z, so we can't change our process for doing something. And I think that that's okay if that is true, that there are some things that are beyond any individual organization's control or individual leader's control. But we at least have to call them out. Because if we pretend they're not there sending a different set of signals, then people don't believe us. They don't believe that we stand for what it is we say we stand for, that the change that we say is happening is really happening, or they're really confused, or we've made it so hard for them to do what it is we want them to do that that they don't understand what's going on. So when we at least publicly call it out, we can't change this thing. We realize it's in conflict, but here's what we can do to mitigate the impact of that. So I think even identifying and recognizing that there are some artifacts that maybe you can't change, but acknowledging that they're there is really important anyway. Yeah. So artifacts are an example of a, of a process glitching, but I picked up from looking at your website that um, that programs actually becoming stuck is quite, a, is quite an important part of what you do is you know, going in and helping organizations become unstuck. Is, is it fair to say that's, you know, having begun with a vision, having got something off the ground, the program goes on and then at some point it may run into problems and become stuck and that's that's a key part of what you do. Absolutely. So, I mean, for better or worse, you know, leaders rarely or teams rarely come to us and say, we're getting ready to embark on a major change. Let's map it all out, you know, right from <laughs> the easy way from the beginning. No, they sort of get down the road. They have some fits and starts, like two steps forward, one step back. Now we're sort of stuck in this muck and we don't know how to get out. Let's go get some help, right? So generally, I find that where people think they're stuck or the thing they think that is keeping them stuck is not what it, what is really the thing, right? So I think oftentimes people will assume it's one thing and sometimes it may only take one conversation to illuminate that it's something else. And I think the the key approach that that I take is well first of all it's just a change of perspective. So oftentimes, you know, when we're stuck in if we think about a quicksand analogy, if you're the one stuck in there, you can't even see where the leverage points might be or how to get out because you're like, you know, neck deep in the thing and you're panicking and and you've got all those blind spots and all that emotion running in a way that you can't see the path out. So sometimes just having a partner who has a different perspective can be really helpful. So whether that's an outside person or someone from a different part of your organization, you know, getting a getting a different perspective is a great starting point. And then asking better questions. So oftentimes the questions we ask ourselves in our organizations or in our teams when we're feeling stuck are questions that sort of reinforce the assumptions and the beliefs that might have led us to the sticking point to begin with. So asking better questions or or just making time to reflect. <laughs> Oftentimes, especially if we think about the last year, some people have barely had a day off or barely had a moment to breathe and they go from Zoom meeting to Zoom meeting or phone call to phone call all day long 
and they leave the the crumbs at the end as their space for any sort of reflection or aha moments to emerge. So just being able to create that space to reflect, to ask better questions, to find a partner who can help them change their perspective, to get at sort of what's underneath the things that appear to be the sticking points. So I love like that five levels of why exercise, you know, where you just sort of keep digging, keep digging, keep digging until you maybe hit the thing that is really the sticking point. Yeah. Now you've mentioned, Nancy, the the challenges that the last year has presented to so many of us. Just, you know, keeping the show on the road has been a, a major challenge. And of course, change by its nature is a process that happens over time. It happens at different speeds. It sometimes happens by fits and starts. And therefore, resilience is is another key attribute that you work in order to, to develop and build with the with the organizations that you collaborate with. Can you say something about, I mean, resilience in the time of COVID has, has come to the yeah. fore even more than ever before? Yeah, well, so, you know, I think certainly the last year has probably shown many of us what we're really capable of in the face of, of a crisis. And and I think for many people, it showed us that we were capable of more than we thought. So I think, you know, sort of taking that <laughs> um, and appreciating that just because we're now beyond our breaking point doesn't mean that we failed, right? Because this has been a lot for a lot of people. So I think there are four kind of key elements that or actions we can take that help to boost resilience. And resilience is one of the key factors in absorptive capacity for change. So how do we increase our organization and the people within its ability to absorb more and more change over time? And how do we help people be more open to change. And so there are these four elements of resilience. One is accepting reality. So we know that denial just makes things harder. So if there are things that, you know, continue to be challenges in your organizations right now because of the current environment, you know, don't try to pretend they're not there. Accepting reality is a key part of resilience. Then we want to boost our ability to improvise. So even when we're not in a crisis or when we feel like we've got that that even keel space and we don't need to be extra resilient, how are we investing in our creativity and our open-mindedness, our curiosity? So ability to improvise is a key element of resilience. And then going back to the why, really having a deep connection with core values for your organization, with the principles that are important to your work. So grounding in that why for the change you're leading or the work you're doing, going back to your mission, that is really powerful for boosting resilience. And then finally, strengthening relationships. So we know that strong connections, that strong bonds are key to resilience. So what are we doing in our organizations to facilitate cross-team bonding, to support relationship building and connection 
when we're in global organizations where we oftentimes don't see colleagues in person for months or ever sometimes, or now when we're in a remote work environment, how do we maintain and deepen those connections that will support us and help us boost our resilience? Right. That was that was fascinating. And if I were to pick up on just one thing, I mean, I could pick up on, on, on many things, but to pick up on the improvisation thing, what do you see the relationship between business systems and improvisation? How do they how do they coexist in a in a harmonious way, would you say? <laughs> well, probably all the systems people listening to this are saying they absolutely do not coexist. <laughs> well, I, I guess I was leading you to sort of you know, yes, to see what you would say to that. With that in mind. Yeah. Well, so obviously, I don't think we can just have, you know, hey, today, let's improvise how we, um, you know, plan travel or let's improvise how we, um, you know, onboard new team members. Well, no, we probably don't want to do that. And at the same time, there, when a, I think where the creativity, the improvisation, the open-mindedness, the curiosity can serve us well is when all of a sudden the pro, the systems that we had in place to serve us in a current context are no longer workable, relevant, or possible, right? So think about the day that we decided we all had to work, we were told we all had to work from home and our policies, protocols, systems were not designed for that. But that had to happen in 72 hours. Well, if we lack the ability ever to think creatively, to think on our feet, to test things out, to iterate, to learn and improve on a constant basis, then we're we're faced with that challenge and we don't know what to do. We fall apart or it becomes so hard or we make so many mistakes that we don't learn from that we can't recover. So when we're talking about resilience, right, it's not that we're improvising every day, but how can we bring creativity into our work life regularly in appropriate ways so that when a system no longer works is possible or is um you know, not relevant for the context, we have that ability to adjust it appropriately, to think creatively, to solve the problem. I guess, again, it's going back to the why question, isn't it? It's sort of getting to the the primordial question, not just dealing with the surface artifacts. It's, um, you know, it's like going back to your Catholic school and sort of saying, well, why? Why segregate the boys and the girls and tell the boys that the girls are the distraction? It's being able to have the mindset that, allows you to interrogate the systems in order to improve them, I guess. Absolutely. Yes. Love it. I mean, I even encourage people to, you know, occasionally just take a a system or a process that we think is working fine and, you know, bring a um, sort of a, a random mix of people to the table to say, if we let's pretend we didn't have this system in place already. If we were creating that from scratch today, what would we do? And maybe you don't implement anything from that. Maybe it's just an exercise in creative thinking. But I guarantee you, one at least one thing is going to come out of that that you're going to go, huh, yeah, we could probably do that instead. And that would be better for us. So let's try it. And it encourages the belief that change is possible, is possible, positive change is possible. Yes. Nancy, I wanted to end with another, we started with a, uh, an element of your biography. I wanted to end with another uh, quotation from your, 
your biographical note, you say, Nancy Murphy has spent her career saying what others are afraid to and learning to say it in ways that others will listen. And I thought that's a really nicely balanced sentence and it's probably easier to do the first part than the second part, but it's important to to keep them in, in tandem, isn't it? Yes, well, because we might be saying really important things. And my guess is every leader I work with has something important and valuable to say. But when it when we're talking about challenging the status quo or challenging an individual's status, which is often <laughs> the case with the change we're making, then we have to learn to say it in ways that people will listen. Because if people don't hear us, if they don't understand us, if we can't get them on board, then what good is the valuable thing we have to say? So my approach to that is focusing less on what it is I want to say and really listening for the people I'm trying to influence, listening for cues that will tell me what it is they're willing to hear, right? What are their fears, dreams, desires, motivations, anxieties? How can I speak to that in an empathetic way that will open them up to listening to what comes next from me? And do you think all change leaders can learn that skill the way that you have learned it in your career? Are there are there shortcuts or is it something you really do have to put in the time to learn that skill of saying saying things in a way that others will listen? Oh, I think it's, I mean, I, I still work on it on a regular basis. It's one of the reasons I love teaching this to people because we know we learn really well when we're teaching others, right? So I think it's a lifelong learning, a lifelong commitment. And I definitely think it's teachable. It's learnable. If I didn't, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. And there are certain elements of this that I think come naturally for me that are intuitive for me. And there's a lot I've learned because I've made the commitment to that. So I think this is absolutely a skill and a mindset that leaders can build. Nancy, where can people find you online? Where can they see your two-minute tips and the other things that you're you're putting out into the world? So the two-minute tips, and uh, I also do a weekly What Inspires Me video, uh, usually on Fridays. That's all on LinkedIn, and I share a lot of tips and resources there, written as well as video. So I would love to have people follow me or connect with me on LinkedIn. Of course, lots of free resources, some of these tools that I've talked about today that you can download from our website at csrcommunications.com and would really look forward to connecting with anyone. They can book a free consult there if they want to learn more about this or just ask any questions about their where they're feeling stuck. We can have a little chat and see if I can help you get unstuck. Get out of that quicksand. Well, Nancy, thank you ever so much for joining us on Social X, the podcast from Momentum today. Um, just a reminder to our viewers and listeners that you can find previous episodes on YouTube and on the usual um, podcast hosts. And I hope you'll join us again next month for another program in the series. Until then, thank you very much. And thank you to Nancy and goodbye. <laughs>